This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, three stories that connect the city to the farm. Coming up, an insect farm in Denver, bugs raised for people to eat. Also, two urban vegetarians spend a week on a cattle ranch. First, a meat processing facility that will be built on a college campus. Colorado State University in Fort Collins has broken ground on a $20 million center for its burgeoning meat science program. A lot of the money for this project comes from Greeley-based meatpacking giant JBS USA. The plan, though, has critics. Luke Runyon is a reporter for KUNC Public Radio and Harvest Public Media. And Luke, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. You have covered the meatpacking industry extensively. Why is CSU building this facility? Well, like you said, there is an incredible amount of interest in meat science as a degree program at Colorado State University. Um, And this new facility that is going to be built um, is supposed to serve that. And the university says it needs this new facility in order to stay competitive with other universities that already have something similar to this. Okay, so meat science, what does that entail? Like who goes into meat science, and what kind of jobs do they take? So the degree program at CSU is really focused on food safety, meat quality. So these are students that are going to be looking at at those sorts of aspects of meat production. And when they graduate, I think a lot of students would like to work for a larger meat company, somebody like a JBS or a Cargill, uh, Tyson Foods, And they're most likely going to be sort of management-type positions. So if you're working at JBS, you might be a director of meat quality or a director of food safety for one of those companies. Okay, so some of these folks might be future inspectors keeping the food supply safe, presumably. How unusual is it for a university to have... Um, not, not necessarily just meat science, but like meat processing on campus? Depends on the type of university, but it's actually not that uncommon for a land-grant university like Colorado State to have something like this. Um, You'll find similar sorts of processing facilities at the University of California, Davis, Oklahoma State University, University of Nebraska. Uh, A lot of land-grant universities that tend to be more agriculturally focused will have something like this to give students a more hands-on experience when it comes to cattle slaughter or poultry processing. The idea being that these institutions were born really out of the idea of contributing to agriculture and and the science therewith. Exactly. A lot of land-grant universities were established in the late 1800s in order to to translate research, agricultural research, to farmers and ranchers. And as they've evolved, they're serving different needs. So now um, I think a lot of land-grant universities see themselves as a way to to put students into jobs uh, like food safety or uh, meat quality or animal welfare. More than 60,000 people have signed a petition on change.org. One part of it says... An on-campus slaughterhouse will mean that living, breathing animals come into the heart of campus and never make it out alive. Uh, What have you heard about some of the other concerns uh, that critics have? I think that petition lays out a few of those concerns. So I think one of them is 
CSU's reputation. Um, The petition puts it pretty bluntly, calling it Cruelty State University, which, you know, is a little hyperbolic, but um, that's one. So either alumni or current, current students feeling like this facility does not match up with CSU values, um, or that it goes against certain environmental or sustainability pledges that the university has made. Um, I think you also have uh, a certain contingent of students who are maybe would consider themselves animal rights activists or vegan activists who say this facility goes against their own personal beliefs about how animals should be treated or that meat production itself is unethical. Um, And then I think there's a smaller subset of people who feel that this is a mixing of corporate interests. So you mentioned that some of the money for this pro- project is going to be coming from a meatpacking company. Um, that that a public university shouldn't be taking millions of dollars from a private university or private company in order to fund its own public university goals. For a sense of scale here, I'll say the Denver Post reports that this will involve the slaughter of five to eight animals. A month or a semester? Now, that's obviously uh, a range that's being offered there, but uh, the the scale of the slaughter, I think, is important to note here as well, Luke. Yeah, it's not uh, a large-scale slaughter facility. Um, JBS owns and operates a meatpacking plant in Greeley, and there you're talking about hundreds of head of cattle being processed there daily. Um, so if you compare it to that, this, this CSU facility will be on a much smaller scale. You're talking about just a, a few head of cattle. But students, the students who are against this say that that doesn't matter. The scale doesn't matter. It's more um, of a symbolic thing. If CSU is wanting to put this particular facility in, that they should, um, that there are people who are just against this altogether, and it doesn't matter how many animals are being processed. I want to say that Temple Grandin, the very well-known animal scientist who works to improve conditions in slaughterhouses at CSU, and I understand will be connected to this new meat science center, which is really a, a larger project, not just a slaughterhouse. Um, uh, I wonder if that would appease opponents at all, her involvement. I think it could. Um, Temple Grandin is obviously a really well-known figure within agriculture and in the the wider world. And I think her inclusion will assuage some people's fears uh, about this facility. Um, She's going to be actually designing uh, a portion of it, and she's already in the animal science department and will have some involvement with um, animal welfare at at the facility. But her inclusion is not going to be enough to assuage everyone's concerns. Like you said, there's 60,000 people who've signed this particular petition, and they knew that Temple Grandin was involved. Just briefly, do you think that the project has any chance of being stopped? Or, I mean, I know that groundbreaking has occurred, and, and obviously these buildings are planned years out. Uh, is it a fait accompli as you see it, Luke Runyon? It's going to take a really heavy lift on the part of the activists in order to stop something like this from happening. Um, You already have, yeah, the ground has been broken. The money is in place. Um, It seems like this project is going to go forward um, unless it it's a really sustained effort on the behalf of current students and alumni making their voices heard. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Luke Runyon, reporter for KUNC Public Radio and Harvest 
public media. So that's a story about taking the livestock to students, now taking the students to the livestock. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine learned about an unusual program at Bear Creek High School. This is in Jefferson County. Seniors do field studies to get out of the classroom. And Jenny follows two city girls who found themselves in a very different world. Have fun! Lyle Cooper and her friend Mackenzie Nays are both seniors and both vegetarians. So this next week will be tough. Their senior field study means home is this cattle ranch in Yuma. That's 40 miles from the Kansas border. So they just really want us to try really, really hard and push ourselves and really lean into the experience. We literally will lean our arms into cows this week. (laughs) That's Nikki Weathers. She and her family are hosting the girls on their 3,000-acre farm. 2,000 of it, corn, popcorn, hay, and alfalfa. Weather's husband oversees the crops while she takes care of the 250 head of Angus cattle. 18-year-old Lyle Cooper doesn't believe in harming animals. She doesn't wear makeup that tests on animals, so she's nervous about one particular activity scheduled for this week, the cattle branding. I know that I need to keep my eyes and heart and mind open, but I think that'll be really hard. The girls have fed cattle, moved fences, and helped prepare the cows for artificial insemination. Lyle's only other farm experience was a job on a pesticide-free organic operation. I love being away from people, and I love being with animals and nature, and this is part of it. The girls are getting a taste of ranch life, even though Mackenzie Nays, who's 17, says she's never liked the taste of meat. There have been moments to remember, like watching the birth of a calf. It's really beautiful just watching something get born. Our closest neighbor is a pig barn. And Lyle says the freedom here is so different from their lives in Denver. We're told when to wake up, when to go to school, when to go to the bathroom, when to raise our hands. But out here... Weathers tells them as soon as you try to set a schedule on a farm, something changes. So this is Tommy. We've been talking about you all week. Nice to, meet you. nice to meet you. As the girls help a neighbor gather and move his cattle, they pepper Weathers with questions like, how many cows does a cow need to be around to be happy? Two, says Weathers. Do horses sweat? Yes. We take an off-road vehicle for the roundup. Mackenzie and Lyle are in the back, their heads resting on each other. They look supremely happy. The 360-degree horizon is capped by an infinite blue sky. Lyle remembers when she and Mackenzie arrived at the ranch. Weathers' two children were confused about why the high schoolers were there. Why are you here to learn if you're not in the classroom or if you're not in school? And we would just say that we are in school. This is our school. And you don't need a classroom to learn. The whole world is a classroom. Would you guys be willing to drive my ranger so we can put cabs in the back of one of them? Yeah. Mackenzie drives the ATV. When she's unsure how close to get behind the cattle as they amble down the dirt road, Weathers pulls up in a pickup and reassures her, just make sure they stay with the rest of the herd. During a water break, Lyle asks Weathers about something she's been wondering about. Were you nervous to have two vegetarians? A little bit, yes. Since we raise beef for a living, I was a little bit nervous about the perceptions and what you might think about, you know, our beef and our cows and a little bit, yes. If I ever do eat meat again, I'd eat your cows. I'd come to you. You would? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 
We actually sell beef to a lot of people for that reason of knowing where their meat actually comes from. and how. Weathers explains some people who buy from them want to know how the cattle are taken care of. Some ranchers didn't want to host students who were vegetarians. Nervousness over what to feed them, things like that. I asked Nikki Weathers why she agreed. Because it's always worth a conversation. It's always worth it to talk to them about why they were vegetarians or why they might have different eating restrictions. And hopefully it was an eye-opening experience to them. So it's worth it to us to be able to show them how animals really are cared for. The three of them make jokes, laugh about it. So many people are like, what do you eat? That was my question too, though. Like, what do you eat? I can't imagine life without meat. But once they've been here, I mean, they eat everything we do, just take out the steak. So it really was eye-opening to me, too, on the other side of they really can eat and live and function. (laughs) This is branding day, and it's an event. Friends and relatives are here to watch and help. Weathers explains the big needle in her hand. So these are the vaccinations that we give to the calves. Uh, one is a respiratory, and one has like seven different viruses in it. Uh, killed viruses that will help to make the calves grow as they get into the summer. The cows are separated from their calves. 15-year-old Tommy is old school. He ropes the calves, they're flipped to their sides, and in a minute, Weathers deftly gives the young calf a vaccination. Someone else places a very small rubber band over the scrotum, above the testicles, and they'll eventually fall off. That's castration. And then Weathers' husband, Nate, steps in to brand. Within seconds, the calf is up and running around, waiting to get back to its mom. Lyle takes it all in. It's pretty overwhelming, but... It's also really informative because I didn't know that there were different uses and different ways to care for your cattle. She says it reminds her of getting a tattoo. Mackenzie says it smells like the glue they use to put your braces on. It was an intense day. The girls are tired, but as their experience winds down, they say they've learned a lot. One thing is that not all cattle are raised the same way. Seeing them out here, like, free-range is just really, like, eye-opening, I guess. They're happy here. Like, you can tell, like, they're not, like, mistreated or neglected. Like, they're happy and clean and healthy, and it's just nice to see. Mackenzie got to ride a horse for the first time. Lyle couldn't bring herself to tag a calf, but that was the only thing she couldn't do. Lyle doesn't want to be a cattle rancher, but she could see herself with a couple of dairy cows. I do want my kids to grow up around an environment similar to this because it allows them to see where their food comes from. And the majority of America's population doesn't even know where a hamburger comes from or where a potato chip comes from. Everyone's so removed. It's also confirmed their belief that there are limits to what you can learn inside a classroom. Senior field studies lets them backpack, do service projects, raft, learn what makes cities work, and it's let a couple of vegetarians learn how to live on a Colorado ranch. Being able to learn outside, not in a classroom, I've learned so much more just about like life in general and like how things work in the world that you don't really learn just sitting in the classroom all day, listening to a teacher, and then going home. And You just learn so much more. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. And there are photos from Jenny's trip at CPRnews.org. You're about to hear the sounds of livestock. Micro-livestock, that is. 
Yes, these are crickets. They're being raised for you to eat at the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver. It is an edible insect farm. Wendy Lou McGill is founder and CEO, and hers is one of six startups selected to take part in an agricultural accelerator. That is a way to grow the business fast. And uh, welcome to the program, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me. So the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch is small in and of itself. You operate in a 40-foot shipping container in southwest Denver. You raise crickets as well as mealworms and waxworms. I understand those are eaten in the larval stage. And you sell to restaurants and food producers. I want to start, though, with what some of your favorite ways are to eat insects. Well, I always like to say that um, the best ways haven't been discovered yet. Okay. But um, I think that um, crickets, when they're crisped up uh, with a little bit of fat added, coconut oil, they're great with popcorn. And um, we also, I also really love uh, a variety of ants that we import from China. They have um, an acid that they use as a defense mechanism that when you eat it is a really delicious citrusy flavor. So there really are a lot of flavor profiles to work with. You have brought uh, with you salted caramels with these Chinese black ants inside and cricket kettle corn. Um, I know that a lot of people are becoming familiar with powder forms of insects. So I know there are those chips with cricket powder, uh, but it sounds like you have a real penchant for eating the insects whole. Is that true? Yeah, that's what we've primarily focused on. There are some wonderful snack food items that have cricket cricket powder. Um, And the powder is just a crazy, uh, dense nutritional ingredient to add to foods. But I think that um, in addition to that, the whole insects really provide an opportunity for people to get a full flavor and to really start to question their food prejudices um, around eating what we eat and what we don't eat. Food prejudices. Say more about that. Well, I like to think Um, try to think outside of our culture in a way and look at what we think are normal. So there, you know, could be something from a fast food restaurant that has um, fried chicken instead of buns and a hamburger in the middle and a a lot of sort of processed condiments. And that is considered to be a little bit crazy, but somewhat normal. Um, And then I show up and try to encourage people to eat insects, which are eaten by um, the UN thinks 2 billion people around the world. Anthropologists think that it was the first animal that humans ate. So it's really not only a new food, but it's really also a a very ancient food for humans. As you've talked specifically about the crickets, it sounds like you enjoy the inherent crispiness in them. I will admit that even as a bug aficionada, I um, do prefer crispy bugs. I'm still a little bit uh, adverse to the the, the, um, juicier Insects. Juicier insects like what? Well, um, for example, we actually just added a fourth species of tomato hornworms, which um, if you've ever seen them on your tomato plants in August are about the size of a small pinky, um, very bright green. And if one was not, uh, wouldn't, if they weren't uh, roasted or cooked well, then they would be quite juicy. Quite juicy. Yes. And that's your own slight food prejudice. Indeed. Uh, what is a day's work like at the micro ranch? 
Yeah, so it's a lot like taking care of any kind of animal that we raise for livestock. Um, there is, uh, you know, checking on food and water, checking on health. And then at different life stages, um, there are things like moving um, the containers that the adult crickets have laid their eggs in into a nursery space. Um, and then there's harvesting, which is uh, also you know, part of raising livestock. How are crickets killed? They are killed, um, actually all the species that we raise with the exception of the hornworms are killed by freezing them. And we feel really good about that for a number of reasons. Um, the primary one is that it mimics what happens to insects in nature when winter comes. So um, when they're put into the freezer, their body temperature lowers. They obviously are cold-blooded. And um, they go into a, a sort of a stasis, a sleep, and eventually they don't wake up. Although we did have a reanimation event once when I delivered crickets to um, actually the first time to Linger, and they hadn't been frozen long enough. Linger is a restaurant in Denver. And, and what, all of these crickets came alive? In the fryer. All right. Has insect farming mechanized in the way that traditional farming has? That's a great question. It has not yet. Um, it is a problem that creates a, a high cost for insects. There, we believe that the potential for insects to be a very low cost, very high nutritional um, uh, source of protein um, is, is that the potential is very high. However, because farming is primarily so manual, that that potential can't be realized the in the United States. The labor costs are so high exactly. here. Exactly. Okay. Yes, in summary. You say in the United States. Does that mean that that nut has been cracked elsewhere? Not exactly. It means that um, one of the biggest places for cricket farming in particular is Thailand. The UN estimates there are 22,000 farms of different sizes in that country. And um, because labor costs are so much lower there, they're able to produce a really great product, particularly the cricket powder, at a very low, a much lower cost than North American farms. I see. So the labor costs differing from nation to nation. We're speaking with Wendy Lou McGill, founder and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver. She raises crickets and other insects for people to eat. And um, her company has been chosen to take part in an ag accelerator to grow the business. Uh, you have uh, intimated that you supply um, your products to restaurants in Colorado and, and elsewhere, I gather. Yes, that's right. We've been able to work with several restaurants in Denver and beyond. And what... Uh, are they doing to integrate them into the menu? What dishes have you seen? That's one of the most exciting parts of this adventure has been to see what chefs will do with insects. I mean, um, you know, I can crisp some crickets and put them into popcorn, but they've come up. Uh, we've had some really interesting dishes like um, uh, a cricket empanada that is a very um, sort of elevated dish with pork belly and um, and the masa incorporates a little bit of cricket powder into it. Um, there has was uh, a chef who worked with chorizo and mealworms. And so ch the mealworms were just one of the protein sources in the sausage. How do you eat the mealworms? They're in what stage and what, what uh, oh, yeah. do they crisp up or? Right. So mealworms are the larva stage of a beetle, the darkling beetle, and they crisp up very nicely. They actually have a higher fat content and slightly lower protein than crickets. So it's a, just a really different, um, a different uh, animal. A different animal, literally, literally. literally and figuratively. That's right. What are the obstacles to 
to making this a widely eaten product? As we said, the powder form is gaining in popularity, but there are still, as as you've hinted at, some prejudices around other forms. Well, whenever uh, the goal is to get people to eat something that it has an entire section in many stores devoted to killing it, right? We're, we know that we have an uphill battle, so... That's right, because uh, part of the grocery store is, is raid, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. Right, so um, there is... Really, it just boils down to consumer acceptance, and um, I, think of a, I think of it in many ways around food prejudices, but I also understand that um, from personal experience uh, that it's that it is um, it really is a large mental hurdle to get over. Um, I, I still experience when I try a new um, species. Uh, for example, I had the chance to try tarantula recently, and it was it was hard to eat. Tarantula mentally is that furriness removed when you eat it? Oh, that's such a good question. You remove it with a creme brulee torch. Before it's cooked. Oh. Um, so do you think that it, as part of this accelerator program, there will be some brainstorming around marketing and, and how to kind of bridge that divide? Yes. Um, there is that. And then there also is brainstorming around what kind of partners we can find to do the research that that needs to be done, you know, from social scientists, for example, around consumer acceptance and that part of, of marketing. In the packaging here, I think of the, yeah, these uh, are the crickets. It says contains insects. People with shellfish allergies may also be allergic to insects. So there's some crossover between shellfish allergies and these foods? Well, um uh, insects, arachnids, and shellfish and some other things are all part of the arthropod phylum, um, and it's kind of like their cousins. So there's a poorly understood crossover of shellfish allergy um, reactions. Poorly understood. So maybe areas for more research. You know, I, I know that one argument for cricket farming in particular is that it is more sustainable, better for the environment, and other method, methods of raising protein but a fairly recent study published in PLOS One, which is a peer-reviewed online journal, showed that raising crickets is just slightly more efficient than raising chickens, for instance, for food. Um, so how much of a difference can this ultimately make? Yeah, that is um, a, that also a great question. So um, again, the uh, what we look at for efficiency, a lot of it boils down to feed-to-meat ratio, which is how much feed do you need to raise a specific amount of um, of Meat, right. Or, it's an input-output question. Exactly. Um, so on that, so that study particularly focused on that aspect, which had previously been um, not well researched, but numbers were being published that were, were it turns out, probably not realistic. Um, I do think that it was. It, I, I think it's a great study. I think that we do need a lot more research. On the other sides of the um, sustainability in farming aspect, um, when you're looking at land usage and you're also looking at um, at waste output, um, cricket farming in particular is a much uh, gentler on the environment as, uh, versus poultry farming. And oh. it's definitely the closest to poultry farming versus hog or cattle. You talk about land use because you can do it with a fairly small footprint, as you're demonstrating in Denver, and then waste product, you know, uh, what? I guess crickets don't poop as much as cows. Is that what you're saying? 
Well, um, or is it on a per capita basis or something? Right. Uh, if you're doing it by body weight, uh, they poop equal equally to cows. Uh-huh. Um, in that, it's um, like many animals, they basically poop the equivalent of their body weight, a little bit less. Um, however, if you're looking at cows, um, cow poop and farts, we're really getting potty mouth here, so no, I apologize. Right, but methane. You methane, know, exactly. exactly is, is a greenhouse gas, a powerful one. And um, and it, the contribution that's coming from livestock uh, from livestock production is actually the one of the largest contributors within agriculture. And then agriculture as a sector is a larger contributor to greenhouse gas emissions than vehicles or transport. Well, thank you so much for sharing this world, this micro world with us. Thank you very much. I hope you'll try some insects. Wendy Lou McGill, founder and CEO of the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver. Her company was selected to participate in an ag tech accelerator that will take place at New Mexico State University. Still to come, nature writer Craig Childs on his quest to understand the first people in North America. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Love you more than I can say. I love you twice as much tomorrow. Love you more than I can say. When we reached out to nature writer Craig Childs recently, he gave us a perfectly characteristic reply. I'm going to be scrambling through the desert for the next week, he wrote. Let's find each other on the other side. The stories he uncovers on adventures like those have landed him several literary awards, and they have inspired commentaries on NPR. Recently, Childs has traveled far from his home in remote western Colorado to track the first people who came to North America. And he's going to talk about that tomorrow night at Chautauqua in Boulder. He's here first, though, with a preview. And Craig, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You walked what's left of the Bering Land Bridge, which I feel like we all learn about, you know, in elementary school, where humans came over in the Ice Age. What was that like? Uh, It's an island off the coast of Siberia. Well, it's in between Alaska and Siberia and the Bering Sea. And it's, it's just one last little remnant of what was there when sea levels were were a few hundred feet lower and it's it's um it's a treeless tundra island and and it's the same shape that would have been there you know 20,000 years ago 50,000 years ago it's a high point so so if you'd been on the land bridge during the ice age you would have been in the in the middle of this immense steppe of woolly mammoths and and American lions, no sign of of any coastline for hundreds of miles in all directions, and then there would have been this mountain range in the middle, which is now St. Lawrence Island, and you get out on that island and and you get a sense of what it would have been like because it was it was treeless more or less during the ice age and and so you're you're walking in the in the same place where where people would have walked during the ice age and you and you put all the pieces back into place you i'm carrying around scientific documents on on what kind of animals were found what what remains so i i can rebuild the picture in my mind and you you have uh then a very vivid imagination to be able to do that <laughs> and, and to and to see what would would have been around you low those many years ago yeah and and to feel it to to um 
uh, out on that island, there are, there are polar bears and wolves, which, which is an interesting addition uh, <laughs> to, to walking around. Um, there aren't many people. There's a there's a Yupik, a Siberian Yupik village that that I was based out of, and um, and I'd I'd walk out from the the village, and they'd be warning me about the wolves. I was worried about the polar bears. And uh, and it ended up being wolves that I ran into. So worry would have been something they experienced, the, yeah. their vulnerability to wildlife. What else do you think would have been going through their heads? Well, I I, I don't know if if they would have realized what was ahead of them. Yeah, that that uh, half the planet didn't have people at that point in history. That human evolution had all happened on the other side of the planet, and and I I think oh if could there be any way that they knew what was ahead that that there was a whole continent out there uh because they were really at the edge of of human expansion they were, that was as far away as you could get and and i imagine there was a sense of isolation of of going out farther and realizing there's just nobody out here mm. and and you know, we we think of thing things in terms of going to space and knowing that there's nothing out there, but we can we can look into it and and we understand that it's empty. But what was it like to stand on the Bering Land Bridge and look east into North America? You would you you would have realized that you're the minority that that the animals the big animals were the majority, and you were you were alone out there in many ways. This was yeah their territory, and you were walking into it. You know, periodically you'll see news reports that say something like humans arrived in North America earlier than previously thought. I mean, just last week, NPR reported on evidence of people in Southern California 130,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, So way earlier than previously thought. Why is figuring out this date uh, so fascinating uh, to you and others? Well, it's... First, it's a it's a mystery because it's so long ago that that there's not much left, so so the evidence is really scattered, and and you know when you come up with this date like 130,000 years ago that just came up re- recently last week, uh, it it changes the way we see this place because we we uh, everybody here came from someplace else. That humans are not from North America originally. That, that we evolved on the other side of the planet. So when humans got here, is this incredible experiment of of unloading this species onto a side of the planet with none others. And what happens then? Just what what do you unleash, and how do they do it? It, it does play with the theme of immigration, doesn't it? Yeah, and how how far immigration goes back, and and who's considered an immigrant you know and what's the starting point for that right right because this is a this this is a hemisphere of immigrants and it always has been and and when we when we talk about it now when we talk about um closing the door and saying okay we got we've got to stop people from coming in you look at this history and you go well this has been a place where people have come in for you know, maybe 130,000 years that's a long time you wrote about uh, these themes in an essay recently called When America Was Great the First Time. And it starts, we were great in the Ice Age. And uh, from there, it turns into really political commentary about how America is a continent and a country that was always open to people willing to make the journey to come here. 
Um, it did make me wonder, for someone who lives off the grid, as you often do, and spends a lot of time traveling in very remote places, what kind of pull politics have on you still, or if you're mostly able to get away from politics and desire that? Well, <laughs> it's. I don't think it's. I don't think it's possible to not to to escape the gravity of politics ever, and maybe especially now. And and I, I guess I I retreat into the past. I I look for ancient things, um, but then I I look at them and I realize, oh, they were probably dealing with the same thing. When I'm looking at cliff dwellings and Pueblo ancestry, I. There were there were serious politics. Go down and hang out on the Hopi reservation. It's it's about politics down there. So you you can never escape politics, no matter how far back you go in human history. And and so I I kind of wrap it into what is going on right now, like thinking about immigration. That uh, that this is this is something that has been happening for so long. And and when I I've traveled along the the Mexican border pretty extensively, and and watched it change over the years, and and. Uh, how it used to be the, there were times that I would travel 20 years ago on the on the border and I'd discover that I'm 5 miles into Mexico when I thought I was still in the US mm. so where the disorienting border, yeah. yeah and the border wasn't that clear then and now how it's changing I I can't get away from the politics uh, what I learn out there helps me see a bigger picture perhaps to see I don't know if that bigger picture is that relevant to be thinking in tens, hundreds of thousands of year timeframes, but mm. it does make me think, well, what are we doing now? And where does that set us up for in a century and in a thousand years and so on and so on? Well, why don't we take a quick break and then you're going to read a section of your forthcoming book uh, yeah. about this retracing of the first peoples in North America. Let's return to my conversation with the award-winning nature writer Craig Childs, who lives in tiny Norwood, Colorado. And so you are working on this book about the first peoples to come to North America. It will be called Atlas of a Lost World, Travels in Ice Age, America, scheduled for release next year. Uh, one thing that you'll describe in it is the excavation of a camel in Colorado. A camel. Uh, you worked on it with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and you have an excerpt of your writing about that um, that you're going to share with us. Yeah, yeah. This is this is from this book, which is taking forever to write. <laughs> but you know, good books they, they take a while. Nothing stirred in the bowels of the earth. Bones lay on bones in silence. The air is still as the inside of a tomb. This cave had sealed shut three hundred thousand years ago. Its entrance collapsed. The next inkling of life was the white light of a headlamp and the scratch of small metal tools. I lay on my side with my hard hat off so I could fit where a camel had died, an awkward place to knock off, I thought. It was a crack at the back side of a small chamber, which is why they gave the excavation to me. I was in my early thirties, base camp cook for a museum crew working a mountain cave in southern Colorado, one of the most voluminous Pleistocene bone producers in the West. A dozen excavators and screeners were in the hole pulling up remains of rodents and bears, cheetahs, horses. I imagined the camel crawling back here, trying to save itself, its hindquarters slashed by saber tooths or hamstrung by direwolves. 
Before this, for the last 300,000 years, the bones remained untouched. Miners blasting into the mountainside, propping up a tunnel with wooden posts and beams, clipped one of the cave's chambers. They dropped in with carbide lamps and found passageways, crystals, domed rooms, and the floors buried in bones, the original entrance having collapsed during the Pleistocene, sealing everything in. Mm. To be the first to lay eyes on something must feel rather stirring. Yeah, I was I was thinking of this as a first encounter between humans and Ice Age megafauna, just, <sighs> but we just had a 300,000-year a, a blip in between. You showed up a little late to yeah. the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> Which is usual. Um, a lot of the journeys that will populate this book, I understand you brought your kids along, too. Yeah, yeah, which... Uh, you want you want to see what it's like from a family perspective because we we talk about adventures you know coming across the land bridge or down the west coast in the ice age and you you imagine these brave people going out into it and and you don't always see the grandmothers the children the the complexity of of how do you get children through a a, a predator infested region which is what you know we uh, one trip was coming down the the coast of Alaska with with families, uh, kids ranging from four to to twelve. Gosh, and so this gives you just a really rich sense of the burden of caring for a family as you are populating a place that has never seen people before yeah, yeah. and must add to the layers of of worry but also of hope right 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 because it's not just it's not just adventurers having a, a great time it's it's oh this actually goes somewhere this this has a we're not just going to disappear out here but you're also seeing how other parents are interacting that and we and we discovered that that kids are are great bear deterrents uh the bears just stayed away from us because okay. we're loud and they're 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 screaming and running around and i imagine a bear just going oh no i do not want to be anywhere near that mess how do you think that this journey of yours to get to know the first north americans relates to some of the earliest people in our part of the world specifically the ancient puebloans you know the people yeah. of mesa verde yeah, that's one of the points of this book. Is is I I go pretty heavily into Native American history and also Native American stories about emergence. Um, you know, sitting with a Navajo singer who's who's speaking back to me in Navajo, and and I'm saying, well, where did the Navajo come from? Because the Diné language comes from the Arctic and and the land bridge, etc. And he's saying, no, we don't come from the land bridge. We come from the ground. And and then I realize, oh. After that much time here, you didn't come from someplace else. You came from this place. and But then I'm balancing that with the scientific perspective where I'm looking at genomes and, and saying, okay, these first people who did come here and hunted mammoths have the same genetic background as Native Americans. So you can see the continuum. So I'm looking at almost a, the pre-Native America world, the people who became Native American, what they were in the previous iteration of the Earth. Where in the Southwest in particular do you want to explore next? Oh, everywhere. <laughs> um, I Is there I, a lot of the Southwest where you, you haven't been, I guess? Oh, most of it. Yeah, it surprises I, me given how often you're, you're out and about. I'm out and about as much as I can, and still it's there there's so much more you're in one canyon and you know there's one canyon over from you um you know to head down into there's southern Utah uh 
four corner everything. I can't stop. Um, you know, all the way down into northern Mexico, the Sonoran Desert, the Colorado Plateau. There is no one place. It just keeps unfolding. So if I if I had ten lifetimes and all the time that I could manage to get out there, it would still I would still not really know the place. Uh, at one point in this journey, you show up at Burning Man, the, yes. <laughs> the huge music and arts festival in the Nevada desert. How how the heck does that fit into this story? We've got about two minutes. Well, the, the Burning Man is sitting on the bottom of an Ice Age lake bed. Oh. And you can see all around it these terraces of a sometimes a 900-foot deep lake. And so a group of us walked to Burning Man across the Black Rock Desert for six days by following the terraces of these Ice Age lake shores. And we were finding artifacts along the way and, and piecing this story together and looking at places where mammoths had been excavated from the floor of the Black Rock Desert. And at the same time, I'm writing about a time 11,000 years ago when huge gatherings started happening, the first gatherings in American history. And while I'm writing about this, I'm looking out on the horizon and seeing this glow <laughs> and burning <laughs> there are times that we looked at it and just said you know maybe we should turn the other way and run but we kept going <laughs> well you encounter uh exotic species of all kinds on these journeys Indeed. I suppose. <laughs> yeah but again it's a way of knitting the past and the present that the i, I don't know right. i guess the instinct to gather persists right the 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 past and the present are inseparable in this book that we are doing the same things that happened 10,000 15,000 years ago we're just wearing different clothes and using different kinds of weapons different ways of communicating but we're still the same species doing the same general thing with iPhones yeah Thanks for being with us. Certainly. Thanks for inviting me. That is award-winning nature writer Craig Childs of Norwood, Colorado. His book about the first people in North America is due out next year. He's going to be speaking about the project tomorrow night at Chautauqua in Boulder. Finally, today, Boulder musician Matt Dane plays an instrument that captivated composers three centuries ago. Composers like Antonio Vivaldi. So this is Dane playing in his home studio, and the instrument is called a viola de more. Dane's version has 14 strings. Seven of them are played with a bow, like a violin, but there are seven more strings underneath that resonate as Dane plays. Matt Dane started an unusual project when he bought his instrument a few years ago. He commissioned composers to write new music for the viola de more. One of the first to write a piece was Rena Esmail, and what she wrote sounds nothing like Vivaldi. Esmail is an Indian-American composer. She combines her favorite parts of Western classical music and traditional Indian music. The piece she wrote is called Nishani. It means keepsake in Hindi. And Esmail says the music is meant to evoke a sense of nostalgia.
Matt Dane premiered this piece in 2014, but Esmail, who lives in Los Angeles, has never heard it in person. That will change today. Esmail's music is featured in a concert at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder this evening. You can hear a full recording of this piece on the first episode of CPR Classical's new podcast. It's called Centennial Sounds, and it profiles 21st century composers whose music is performed here in the Centennial State. You can listen and subscribe to that CPR Classical podcast at cprclassical.org. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.